May you turn with me to the passage we read, Matthew chapter 16. Our vocabulary changes over the years, doesn't it? One thing I never heard of when I was growing up was the term bucket list. Uh, I looked in the dictionary, it strictly applies to those who are eternally dying, uh, the things they'd like to achieve uh, before they die. But I think it's come to mean really those things that all of us uh, really want to do. Uh, it may be to visit a certain destination, uh, it might be to uh, give some particular artist at a concert, uh, it might be some other uh, goal in life. Uh, as Christians, uh, we, we should in a sense, the right sense, have our bucket list uh, things we really desire spiritually, such as greater holiness. I hope that's high on our list. We want to be more holy. We want to be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, another desire I hope we have uh, is to lead others to Christ, to share our faith with others, to tell others about the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that desire brings with it really two fears. Uh, we fear upsetting people, uh, especially if it's someone we're close to, maybe at work or in the family and the we begin to speak to them about sin and their need, we're perhaps afraid uh, they might get upset, we might uh, break our friendship or something like that, so there's a fear from that point of view. There's a fear on the other hand of where do we start? How do we share our faith? How do we tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do we start in the Bible to explain uh, the Gospel? I'd say, well, John 3.16 is a good starting point. Sure it is. Uh, wonderful truths uh, there. Uh, but if you want a longer passage, I suggest the passage we read uh, is very appropriate, very suitable uh, to seek to share the gospel uh, with others. Jesus has asked his disciples here what people are saying about him. Now, of course, people don't usually... So tell the person concerned what they think about him, they tell someone else, don't they? Uh, and of course we know there are lots of negative things said about Jesus, especially by the Jewish leaders, but uh, this really uh, is a positive in a sense, that some were saying uh, John the Baptist, John the Baptist of course by this time had been killed, but some thought that Jesus was him raised from the dead, uh, others thought Elijah, we know at the end of the Old Testament that Elijah was said to come back, and Jeremiah or one of the uh, prophets. And from the reply and the subsequent conversation, I think we can learn what it is to be a Christian and what, are, what I call some of the basics of the Christian faith. And my first point is that to be a Christian is to hold Jesus Christ in the highest Esteem. Notice Peter's reply when he hears what others are saying. He says to them, Well, who do you say I am? And Peter's uh, memorable response is in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So 
So Jesus believed that, uh, Peter believed that Jesus was unique. He was the Christ. Now others were saying he was a prophet. Um, of course he was. Uh, the Christ means the anointed one. Uh, there was a process of inaugurating people into a, a public office uh, there and it took place by pouring oil on their heads. A bit of a messy business. You read Psalm 133 and it talks about the uh, oil running down Aaron's beard and onto his clothes. Uh, so that was a, a messy business. But it was an important uh, occasion, an important ritual, if we like. Prophets were anointed in the Old Testament. That many prophets, and we don't get that many examples, but certainly Elisha was anointed into the prophetic uh, office. Uh, but Peter said, You are the Christ, not just a Christ, but the Christ, the anointing. Christ is equivalent to Messiah. So that was the, the Jewish or Aramaic, and uh, Christ was the uh, from the Greek, but the anointed one. And uh, in the Old Testament, three offices were. Uh, inaugurated by the, the anointing prophets, priests, and kings. So that Jesus was not merely a prophet, uh, but he was the Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. So in Peter's estimation here, and it should be in every believer, uh, Jesus was regarded as unique. Is Jesus unique to you? Your thinking, does Jesus stand in a class by himself? We invited one of our neighbours who came out to a service here a few uh, months ago uh, now, and when we had him in for coffee afterwards, uh, he was telling us, well, yes, Jesus is a wonderful person, but you can just as easily get to heaven through Muhammad, or Buddha, or Confucius. In other words, Jesus wasn't unique. He was just uh, one religious leader that could be of help uh, to you, whoever you want to follow. Of course, we utterly reject, reject that. Peter himself said later, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And he's talking about the name of Jesus. Jesus is unique. And if you are to progress in your spiritual pilgrimage, <clears throat> if you ought to know <clears throat> the Lord, you have to see that Jesus is absolutely unique. He's not one among many uh, spiritual leaders. He is the only one, certainly the only one uh, that can get you to heaven, that can bring salvation. But also in Peter's estimation, he was divine. The Son of the living God. <clears throat> Many gods in this world, lumps of wood, metal, stone, <clears throat> various ways in which idols uh, are made, but our God is a living God. Some of you may remember back in the 60s, not too many here remember those days, <clears throat> but there was quite a, a movement and a lot of publicity uh, saying that God was dead. <clears throat> These people were saying there had been a God, but he died. Well, didn't seem to last very long in terms of publicity. Uh, but of course, to many, it wouldn't make much difference, would it? <clears throat> to many live as if there is no God. Go about their daily business, their jobs, whatever it may be, 
without any reference to God at all. We might ask ourselves, this is obviously very hypothetical, if God were to die, how long would it take us to find out? Would it make much difference in our lives? Would it make much difference in the way you raise your family, relate to your husband, your wife, your children, do your job? Uh, even spiritually, you could still read the Bible, you could still offer prayers, and as a church, how many churches would know if God were to die? Would it make any difference? They could still sing the same hymns. They could hear the same prayers. They could read the same passages in the Bible. They could hear the same sermons. What difference would it make if God were dead? Is God's presence so uh, vital to us that our longing every time we meet together is to know the presence of God? So if God were dead, we'd know an absence. We have a deadness and emptiness. Uh, I feel we don't give enough care, attention to that presence of God. Some of you will remember Bill Payne often used to uh, pray for that felt presence of God. Ours is a living God. And we should want to know His life, to know His presence. Uh, as individuals and as a church. Well, Jesus is the son of a living God, God's son. Well, in the sense he had a beginning, <clears throat> he was, of course, eternal, part of God. My children were part of me, in that sense, by the same DNA, by the same personality, character, and to some uh, degree, well, Jesus uh, was closely connected uh, with God, of course. And people often carried the Father's name. Notice in what Jesus says to, to Simon in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, by Jonah, the son of Jonah. So the, the Father was an important character. And to, to have that connection was, uh, was important. Jesus, of course, was intimately identified with the Father. He was with the Father, uh, there was a distinction, and yet at the same time, that identity. Remember those uh, wonderful words at the beginning of John's uh, Gospel. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So there was a distinction. I drove here this morning with my wife. It doesn't make me the same as my wife, does it? There's a distinct uh, personality, distinct people. But yet, in Jesus' case, the, the Word was was distinct in terms of his uh, functions, uh, his working in salvation, and yet he was one with God. He was one with the Father, uh, the closest possible relationship. And that term solve is also used to denote character. When Jesus chose his twelve disciples, apostles, uh, you remember James and John, he gave them a nickname. Sons of Thunder. Uh, you could maybe get some idea of what their characters might be. Might have kind of explosive characters. Uh, very boisterous there. God dealt with them uh, in time. Uh, but using that term, the Sons of Thunder, uh, was in some way a reflection of their character. 
And of course, Jesus being the Son of God, there is a reflection of his character, that oneness with God. He was God-like. He was holy. He was just. He was faithful. Uh, he was loving. So Peter held Christ in the highest esteem. Uh, do you? You see, our thinking, our estimation, do we hold Jesus in the highest esteem, absolutely unique, uh, beyond all uh, other beings? Jesus is unique. That's a very vital part of becoming a Christian, to hold Jesus in the highest esteem. The second thing, to be a Christian requires the sovereign work of God. After Peter makes this uh, great statement, you are the Christ, son of a living God, what does Jesus say to him? Well, well done, Peter. You did well to figure that out. He says, no, no, no. Uh, notice what he says. Uh, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, that was a wonderful statement, but you didn't figure it out yourself. It was revealed to you by the Father. And that's, that's good for us to, to, to realize that. No one ever became a Christian simply by examining Christian truth and making a rational decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it often seems that way, and we must use our minds, we must use our whole beings uh, to embrace Christ and to uh, follow him. Uh, but Jesus' words are clear. This was revealed or the Father. There is a human factor in uh, becoming a Christian. We must repent. We must believe, but never without divine enabling. In those famous verses in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And uh, Paul speaks of, and the apostles speak of, uh, God uh, granting repentance to the Gentiles. Yes, these things are vital, but they grant it by God. We don't figure them out ourselves. There is the revelation never without divine enablement. John 6, 65 No one can come to me unless the Father enables him. You realize that. That's humbling, isn't it? Uh, you may have a, a university degree, you may have a long stream of uh, letters after your name, and, uh, but that doesn't mean it, make it any more likely that you will understand Christian truth. There needs to be revelation. You need God's help to grasp that. And I say that's humbling. However smart we may be, we're not smart enough to figure out the gospel and to trust in Christ has come by God's revelation and enabling power. But at the same time, it's encouraging because it means if God must reveal it, he can reveal it to anyone. I'm sure you've got people in your family, we have, uh, there, and you pray for them day after day after day and sometimes you feel it seems impossible, it seems so unlikely they will ever be converted, but no one is too hard. We can probably all think of some people uh, that seemed hopeless and yet God in a wonderful way drew them to himself 
was a time when they came to, to see the truths of the gospel and respond to it. So I say it's, it's humbling to realize we can't do it by ourselves, but it's encouraging that no one is too hard to be brought to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, to be a Christian, you must have a high esteem of Christ. You must experience the sovereign work of God. And then thirdly, being a Christian is related to Jesus' death. Now, notice the wording in verse 21. This is immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus' response. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples they must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. Peter's affirmation was a, a landmark confession. It wasn't the beginning of his faith. He was already a, a believer, but it was a big step forward in his understanding. Still limited, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, but it was a significant point in Peter's spiritual pilgrimage. So much so that we read from that time Jesus began to speak about his death and resurrection. If you're familiar with the Gospels, I'm sure you are, uh, early in his ministry, the emphasis seems to be on repentance, uh, the kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his very first words of, of public uh, ministry there in places like the Sermon on the Mount, or really an exposition of what the kingdom of God was uh, all about. Uh, but from this time, Jesus began to focus his attention more on his death and resurrection. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that. Uh, there's been very little mention of that earlier, but now he begins. It's from that time he began to show his disciples he was going to die and rise from the dead. So what is that? What is the relationship between Peter's confession and Jesus' death? Peter is making a clear statement as to what he believes about Jesus. But as yet, he doesn't understand what made him a believer. And that, of course, was the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, becoming a Christian, we must see, uh, is more than declaring loyalty to Christ. It includes that. But it is entering into a new relationship with God. Because the old relationship is deeply flawed. We are sinners. Sinners by birth. Sinners by nature. Sinners by practice. And uh, contrary to the sentimental views of some, God does not ignore that sin. He bears along. He's patient, merciful, gracious, but he's angry with the wicked every day. In Psalm 11, 7 verse 11. And one day, sin will be punished. Sin will be punished in full measure. And that's bad news for sinners. We're here this morning still in our sins. Unconverted, our sins have not been washed away in Christ's blood. That's bad news. 
And if that was the end of the story, uh, that would be just bad news and a, a sad day, no hope. But there is good news. That's what the gospel is. God planned a way to save sinners. A just way. A way for sin to be punished and for sinners to be saved. The way of the cross. That's what the cross uh, is all about. Uh, that wonderful work of uh, Christ. Uh, and as soon as Peter makes his great confession, uh, Jesus speaks about his death and resurrection. So there's a vital connection between uh, that confession of Christ and Jesus' death and resurrection. And we need to see the connection. We need to see the necessity of the cross. Many see the cross as simply a, a Jesus martyrdom. Shows how far he was willing to go for his cause and willing to, to die uh, for it. Uh, that may be partly it, but it's far more than that. It was that place of sacrifice. That place where sin was atoned for. That sin where sin, place where sin was punished. And that place where salvation was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see the necessity of the cross. And even Peter didn't see it at this point. You notice that? Verse 22. After he'd said that about his death and resurrection, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. The idea of Jesus dying was absolutely foreign in Peter's thinking. He couldn't imagine that Jesus had to die. Uh, and not merely was he mistaken, but uh, he must have got the biggest shock of his life to date. Because notice verse 23, he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Was Jesus telling Peter he was Satan-possessed? Controlled by uh, demons? No, he wasn't saying that. But what he was saying was to deny the cross is satanic thinking. And that's the way that uh, the devil would like it. No, there's no need for a, a cross. Uh, just let Jesus teach, perform miracles, uh, but he's going to die. Well, that's the end of him. Uh, but no, you need to see uh, that the cross was the focal, focal point of the gospel. It's the very heart of the Christian message. And to deny the cross was satanic thinking to undermine the gospel. So Jesus points that out. No cross, no salvation. Don't we see that? We can all see that here this morning. Without the cross, there can be no salvation. Well, fourthly, becoming a Christian means taking up the cross. That is verse 24, all in the same Context, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross, of course, was the instrument of execution. Uh, the Romans made those sentenced to death and that way carry the cross to the place of 
execution. If you read the Gospels, one of the Gospels uh, we read there of Jesus taking up his cross. So he began to do that, the usual thing. But a little later, we notice they, they grabbed hold of a man, just a bystander, Simon of Cyrene, and made him carry Jesus' cross. So I think we must assume uh, that Jesus wasn't physically strong enough to carry it. He collapsed under the weight of the cross. Uh, but normally, uh, if you were going to execution, you carried your cross. And if you saw someone bearing their cross, you knew they weren't coming back. They were going to their death. They were going to that place of execution. Cross meant death, nothing else. So when Jesus says if we follow him, we must take up the cross, he meant like him, we must die. Not literally, of course, by crucifixion. Of course, many Christians did, especially in the early centuries, and many to this day have still laid down their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus means something else. Uh, not literally laying down your life, but dying to self. Self-denial is required of Christians. Jesus could have taken another route and spoke about the need of, of holiness, but he takes this, this route. We must take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We must live in a pattern of self-denial, not for a few weeks a year, as some do through Lent, uh, but that's our lifestyle. We tuck up, take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's our lifestyle. Things we would naturally like to do, we don't if they're not favourable to the kingdom of God. Verse 26 puts it in perspective uh, there. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? To gain the whole world means to achieve all worldly goals. Yeah, you maybe have your worldly bucket list and every goal there can be achieved attained, uh, but what will that profit? Uh, if we go that route, uh, we uh, deny ourselves uh, salvation. And our goals could be money, prestige, fame, pleasure, sport, many things, and to fulfill every ambition is to, uh, to gain this world. That route. But to take up the cross means we deny ourselves these things. Now don't misunderstand me. If we have a job, we do it the best we can. It's not to say we have no interest in anything of this worldly. If the Lord has given us a job, do it the very best you can. Seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in the way you, you do it. And that's true of every uh, natural position we have in this world. We do it to our best in all uh, things. We work hard, do the best we can, but we don't do it to be rich or famous. We don't do it to climb the social ladder, but to please the Lord. And if he prospers us, that's fine. God does seem, see fit sometimes to prosper people with wealth. Not many. You know, the scriptures there, it's uh, easy for to go through the eye of the needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Very few can be trusted with the riches. It would become a snare 
uh, to them and to most of, uh, of us. So progress in this world is not our goal. Uh, riches are not our goal, I trust. Some things in this world are plainly wrong. It's immorality, it's greed, living for pleasure. But even in legitimate things, the things of the world must be subservient to the kingdom of God. Paul says, if you use this world, don't be engrossed by it. That's Corinthians 7.31, that's the NIV. Uh, there. there are many things that are quite legitimate. Uh, you may have a good hobby, that's fine, but if you were to spend every day doing it, it would not be profitable. Right? Most of you know, uh, I'm a bird watcher. I'm on my morning walks, so I can enjoy the birds that I see, and very occasionally I might take a half day to go and watch birds in migration there. Uh, but some of the people I see in different places, I see them every time. And I get the impression they must go bird watching all day and every day. I don't know if they have families or not. So there's nothing uh, immoral or wrong about bird watching. But if I did it every day, all day, neglecting my uh, wife, uh, neglecting the church, that would be wrong. So that's where we take up the cross, we deny ourselves these things, even though many of these things might be uh, legitimate. So we have a choice to live for the world, for self, for earthly glory, or to live for God, for his kingdom and his glory. If we do the first, we forfeit our soul, we lose it live for the things of this world. We do the second by God's grace, we save it. He made his choice. He's taken up the cross. He follows Christ. How about you? Are you doing that? Have you taken up the cross? Are there things that you perhaps naturally like to do, but you know it would not be conducive to your spiritual growth, and helpful in your Christian life, and so you don't do those things. Have you taken up a cross? We need to do that permanently. And then fifthly, being a Christian means being ready for Christ's return. So it's all in the same context here. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what? He has done. Whether we enjoy this world or find it boring or stressful, it will go on forever. And the blessings and curses of this life have a time limit. Jesus is coming back. Death may come first uh, for us, perhaps for most of us uh, there, but the main event that Scripture sets before us is the return of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He's coming back. came once in humility, in obscurity, in weakness, Bethlehem. He'll come again in glory, in power, and with universal observation. Every eye shall see him. And that's not just an event to finish life as we know it here on earth. Uh, it is the final day of reckoning. Jesus comes back, we believe that will be the final day of judgment. 
uh, will give an account before the Lord. Salvation is by grace, but very clearly in Scripture, judgment is by works. That is, uh, our works demonstrating the reality of our life, our relationship to God, positive or negative, uh, will give an account of our deeds, our words, even of our thoughts when the Lord comes back. And those who have believed in Jesus as Messiah, the Son of the living God, have seen the importance of the cross for their salvation, have taken up the cross and followed him, uh, they'll be rewarded with eternal blessings and glory. They'll be with him forever. A glorious thing to look forward uh, to. Those who have not believed these things, have not taken up the cross and followed him, will be cast out from God's presence and thrown into hell. And that's not metaphorical. It is a literal place of everlasting punishment. It's very clear from God's word. So we have to ask, are we ready for that day? Jesus is coming. We don't know when. Are we ready for it? Be ready, whatever it might happen. John Wesley was once asked, if you knew that Jesus was coming back today, uh, how would you live your life any differently? He said, I wouldn't live life any differently. And he would get up, he would seek the face of God, he would seek to proclaim the word of God, live for his glory. Uh, but he is coming back at a time when we know not, and we need to be ready. And if we're ready, if you can say by God's grace, I'm ready if the Lord should come today, or if we should die today, ready to stand before the Lord. What a blessing. What a privilege only by grace. Is that true? But if you're not ready, if you know that you're not ready for the return of the Lord, uh, you need to take some serious steps in terms of salvation and everlasting matters. You need to make sure you are ready to wake up and to get serious about these things don't keep putting these things off they're important and they're urgent you might say well this is important maybe when i get through school or get a job then i'll begin to think about eternal things we never know what one day may bring forth we don't know when christ will come we don't know when we'll take our last breath we need to be ready. He is coming. May God grant us all to be ready for that glorious day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that we see in this passage. The uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ, his glory, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. See that only by God's grace are these things revealed to us. See the importance of his cross, his death, his resurrection. See the need to take up our cross. And Father, we pray that these things indeed will uh, speak to us, touch our hearts. We will be ready for that day. By grace, Father, it's only by your grace we'll be ready. Grant that we will. If there are those here this morning that are not ready, know if you were to come back today they would not be ready oh grandfather that 
they would take these things so much to heart that they would seek your face and to make sure that they are ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in our Saviour's name. Amen. Number 210, I will sing for my Redeemer, the wondrous beloved.